just past 7 o'clock, and it's a Monday night, so you know you're going to hear from us. It's Ira on Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Got a great show on tap for you tonight. And Ira, I think you just got back in town. Sometimes you can put in a lot of events, but not have to travel all that much. I mean, some Sundays you find yourself traveling through seven states. (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes you could stay in one centralized location and take in a lot of sports, and that's what you did this past week. Well, just one sport, the U.S. Open. I, I think I'm addicted to it. <laughs> I, I said I was going to go a couple days, and you end up going every day. Uh, the U.S. Open is phenomenal to go to. It is, to me, the best thing about New York City really is the U.S. Open. <laughs> it, I love tennis. I love the fact that you can jump around. I'm so good at going to knowing where to go. I, you can see the you're, you're on most of the courts, you're so close to the action. It's not like golf where you're fighting through things. It is tremendous to go to. I love watching tennis. I think it's great to see the drama, the excitement. You see the players. So I love the sport. I love watching the sport. And this is the number one event besides Wimbledon. Uh, so it's just so much fun to be there. And we got to see some great young Americans coming. And you have the Osaka story. There were so many different storylines. So there was no uh, Nadal, no Federer, no Serena, no Venus. And I was like, ah, oh, whatever. But there's still enough storylines that I was very intrigued, had a great time going to it. And so I was there like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then took Saturday off to watch football. And then I was back Sunday night. So I got all those. I did not go to Florida State Notre Dame. And it ended up being a pretty good game. Yes, I know. know, know. (laughs) We'll we'll talk all about that more later, though. And we got uh, some good stuff coming up with tennis, so stick around. Also at 745, we're going to have Terry Brennan Jr. join us. Tell us about him. Terry Brennan Jr. is interesting because his father, who's still alive, was the coach at Notre Dame. So I thought it was interesting to bring someone from Notre Dame into perspective is that in the 50s, he was he had one of the most legendary wins maybe of all time in the history of football where he defeated Oklahoma. They were had a 47-game winning streak, and he was able to defeat 40-game winning streak and uh, were two-time national champions, defeated them. He coached uh, for five years at Notre Dame and was fired, and with like a fairly good record. And it just this whole idea about Notre Dame and the challenge of, of they're trying to – you know, people who hate Notre Dame would like this reading is saying, like, you think you're holier than thou, but you really are just like big time football, whatever. And then other people say back and forth about what Notre Dame's about because Terry Brennan Sr. was just a great person, a great coach. And at 25, he gets a job. And at 30 years old, he's out of coaching and never coached a game the rest of his life. And that's the fascinating thing. <laughs> there sure, surely offers. And he just said, you know what? I think that's, I think I'm going to hang it up there. I mean, you're coaching Notre Dame and you coached and you, and you had like the biggest win in, at that time, one of the biggest wins in the history of college football. Uh, and you just and they just it surprised everyone that they fired him, and yeah. then he just never coaches again. And we'll talk to uh, talk to his son Terry Brennan Jr. at seven forty five. Ira, so I'm not the biggest college football fan. I, I'm someone who happily admits I like the NFL better. It's just more enjoyable to me. But I'm always really excited for Saturdays before the NFL season starts, and that's what I did this this Saturday. I glued myself to the to the couch and watched football all day. It was awesome, and I think you're a little bit concerned here for the ACC and what this conference is trying to be. I, I'm, I'm concerned about – I wouldn't be concerned because I really – I don't have like a passion interest for the ACC, but I would say this. The ACC did not have a very good weekend. The Pac-12 had a horrendous weekend, and I think it's clear that the narrative of this entire weekend is that Alabama is better, much better than I think people thought they were going to be, yeah. and the other teams aren't as good. So the gap between Alabama, before you would say, well, there's Clemson and there's this and that. These other teams showed a lot of problems and whatever. And Alabama looks, and it's so interesting about Alabama. Nick's, and, and, and you're giving credit to, like, offense. He lost his entire staff. There's one assistant coach back on the offensive side. They lost, like, every 12 coaches. And they're still phenomenal. I mean, they're, they're phenomenal. They're better than ever almost. And that's what makes Alabama looks. They're just, they are, they are an elite. There's Alabama and there is everybody else. It's, it's not close. And this was a game, I was looking at it, and maybe it's because we hear so much Miami talk and news that I was kind of high on this team this year, and I guess you still can be. They were playing Alabama, but that looked like, that was worse than Bishop Sycamore versus IMG. We have have to talk about the Bishop Sycamore game, too. But that was like watching grown men push junior high kids around, Ira, and that's supposed to be the number 14 team in the country, and it just looked like they were on different fields. Well, Bryce Young, and considering Bryce Young, this is his first ever start of a football game. So their quarterback comes in, and they, they've had now Tua, and they have Mac Jones, and now they have Bryce Young, who they say. And Jalen Hurts. <laughs> and Jalen Hurts. <laughs> and now Bryce Young comes in, and uh, Alabama led 27 nothing before Miami crossed midfield. It, it was effortless. Right. And, and the point is, is that not only was Alabama's offense unstoppable, their defense was great, too. So they, have the, they combine everything. And mm-hmm. that's why we're going to talk about Georgia. Georgia, oh, their defense is so good. Well, Alabama's defense is probably better than Georgia's defense, and their offense is like 100 times better than Georgia's <laughs> defense. But I'll give you the one play of the game was when uh, Bryce Young was – Miami 
it got him in and he it forced him to it looked like it was intentional grounding in the end zone. So it'd be a safety. He was ran was running around, threw it out, but the ball barely got past to the line of scrimmage. So they talked and talked and talked and said, Okay, not intentional grounding, sit not a safety. What's the next thing they do? They're like on the one inch line or whatever, one yard line. They went and threw a nine six five yard line, really. Five yard, a ninety-five yard pass to Jamison Williams yeah. for a touchdown. I mean, that's like, <laughs> and 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 three Miami defensive backs have the edge to, to tackle him, yeah. and Williams just ran. I mean, that was faster than the Olympics. Like, just just ran by them, and that was tremendous. But it was it was they sacked Derek King, the quarterback for Miami, four times and forced him to two interceptions and a fumble. And uh, Miami just ran the ball thirty-one times for eighty-eight yards. They couldn't even run the ball or anything. And and again, I'm looking how bad the ACC is. Miami could go and win all their games in the ACC, but the fact is the gap between Miami and then like I was hearing talk about well is Alabama like Michael Orvin made a comment that well Miami back in the day was better than Alabama is now I'm like no way <laughs> first of all they played in the Big East Conference and they played as an independent they played a lot of easy games Alabama's playing the SEC which is clearly the, the premier conference yeah and, and I mean they were getting what five guys drafted a, a year five six they're getting five or six in the first 20 drafted it's yes. insane the, these Alabama teams um, let's go to Clemson and Georgia. I, I was so excited for this game. And it, I mean, I guess if you like defense, it's not a bad thing, but this was just not an explosive game by any means. Well, I think both you and I, and we talk about these draft experts, and people think JT Daniels, the quarterback of Georgia, is someone who is going to be playing in the NFL. Did not look like he no. could play NFL Europe. DJU <laughs> at Clemson, we saw last year, and he looked good. But maybe it's looking, when you look good, when your offensive line is like very good, but you lose Travis Etienne, and they lost a lot of their players. Their, Clemson's offense is a disaster, and they were and they were sacked. DJU was sacked uh, seven times. Could not just get could could not really do anything. But Georgia, I mean, everyone Georgia fans are all excited. They're like they won a big game. I understand this is really big, but they didn't. They scored three points on offense. Their only touchdown they scored was uh, Christopher Sifts, uh, Smith's seventy four yard interception return for a touchdown at the end of the first half. And uh, but uh, the Tigers had a, Clemson had a chance to win with seven seven thirty five left. They got to the 50, and they couldn't even get past the 50 on a fourth and five. But Clemson's offense was beyond anemic. They, were, they had 23 rushes for minus two yards. <laughs> that was, they couldn't rush the ball. They couldn't pass the ball. And, uh, and it's funny because I think a couple years ago, people thought when Clemson, when Trevor Lawrence won his first, won the national championship, they beat Alabama. Everyone says, oh, my gosh, look how great Clemson is. Alabama's dominance is gone. That really must have motivated Saban mm -hmm. because now the gap between Clemson, even Clemson last year didn't look good in that Ohio State game. They lost to Notre Dame, and now they have, look, Clemson's still one of the elite programs. But the fact is they don't play another ranked team the rest of the year probably, and this is going to be a challenge for them to maybe not get into the playoff. But they're, they just, their offense, they, they do not look like they did last year. When you have Trevor Lawrence as your quarterback, he sort of eliminates, you know, a lot of errors that you have. <laughs> well, I think it was maybe the Deshaun Watson uh, national championship game that started saving, like, I can't just run the ball and play defense anymore. I've got to evolve and start playing offense like these guys. Then Trevor Lawrence, and now <laughs> Saban is not taking any prisoners no, on either it, side of the ball. Right, and now Clemson looks like they're looking like the old Alabama teams will play defense. So Clemson's defense was good. Like, I told you when we, we talked last week, I said, I love Clemson's defense. I think Clemson has, they're loaded with NFL players. Yes. And they look like that against Georgia. But they have absolutely nothing on offense. And it's, it's a mess. And their offensive line is a disaster. And they're going to, now in the ACC, that might work because these teams are so bad. And they're going to run out these scores. And they might have some big wins. They're like, oh, they're 60 to 7. But if Clemson played Alabama tomorrow, Alabama would be fair by 25 points probably. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> Let's go on to Notre Dame, Florida State. Another one, I, I really, I, I underestimated Florida State. And I just, I, I'm thinking that Notre Dame is going to be a top five team when it's all said and done, and Florida State's not going to be ranked. It didn't look like that, on, on, you know, actually watching the game. Well, when Notre Dame's up 38 to 20 with four minutes to go in the third, you thought they had the game under control. But then uh, there, there was, a, you know, in terms of coming back, I, you know, Florida State gets a lot of credit for coming back. Mackenzie Milton comes in there, gets that field goal at the end. I mean, I was catching. I was watching tennis. I was at the tennis match and then watching it on my phone and everything. And then Florida State's ended up scoring 18 points in the fourth quarter. So they actually came back again, kicked the field goal to tie, and then they, the overtime was a mess. And then they, you know, they went. That's a game, though, you sort of want to win. Like, I know that it was great. But oh, it's I think, great to get a win there. It, it, I think Florida State needs Notre Dame. I think winning that game, like Notre Dame wants to play for the national championship. Yeah. And at the end of the season, people are going to say, oh, you blew an 18-point lead. Like, this is going to be, you go to Florida State, you win this game. Like, this was important. So as much as Florida State wants to feel good that maybe they played really well, which they did, you should have, if you're going to come back from 18 down, win the game. So that was the <laughs> point. But I, I love the Mackenzie Milton story. People forget that he hasn't played football since November 18th. He was the quarterback for Central Florida, uh, led them to that undefeated season, and just a great quarterback. And then he hurt his knee, and people thought his leg, his knee, and uh, 
uh, and they thought his career was over, sat out two years, comes back, and uh, was able to come in there in the game in the fourth quarter and play well. So North Carolina has been a team that has really given uh, University of Miami fits over the past couple of years. They seem to always drop a game to them. And Virginia Tech has, I feel like they haven't made a bowl in a half a decade, Ira. But we saw Virginia Tech come out and knock off what's supposed to be one of the ACC powerhouses. Well, Virginia Tech, where you think about Virginia Tech with Frank Beamer as the coach and when they were great. Uh, and of course, that was decade, decades ago. But uh, the last few years, Justin Fiente, five and six, six and seven, five and six. He really hasn't played well. Last year's two games, he lost pit to pit, 47 to 14, 45 10 to Clemson. And I was real interested to watch this game because Sam Howe, again, another one of these quarterbacks that's going to oh, be in the NFL, one of the top two picks in this year. Look terrible. Three interceptions. I saw Howe against Texas A&M, and I'm like, I think he's too small. Like, he doesn't, but, you know, you, but so is McCombs. Patrick Mahomes is sort of small, too. But uh, this was the UNC's highest preseason rating since 19, uh, 1997. And, uh, and so they were, they were ranked 10th. But to, they, he threw three interceptions. Sam Howell, just, they just couldn't get their offense going. They just didn't look like a team. And now, again, Virginia Tech is also ACC. But if you're the ACC, you wanted a team that's like, oh, the superstar. So you have North Carolina loses. You have Florida State that loses. You have Clemson that loses. You have Miami loses. All your premier teams all lost in the same day. And to, to, to add uh, uh, insult to injury, Charlotte, Charlotte, who plays, just started playing football, beat Duke, and Northern <laughs> Illinois beat Georgia Tech. So the ACC was just losing all over the place. And, and you'd think it couldn't get worse, and then you look at the Pac-12. I think the Pac-12, it's scary what happened. So Oregon is ranked number 11 in the country. And everyone's like, well, Oregon, and this week they're going to they're gonna go to Ohio State. So people are talking about Ohio State, Oregon, Ohio State, Oregon. They were losing to Fresno State. Losing this game and barely won. Well, they favored like 20-some points to go in that game. And then I watched this game on because I saw the score and I'm like, I have Pac-12 Network, one of the few people that has like their Pac-12 yeah. Network. So I watched <laughs> Especially it. Especially on the East Coast. Well, Washington is playing at Michigan this week, so it's interesting people are talking about the Washington-Michigan game. They're ranked number 20. Montana, which is an FCS team. They don't even play. Like, they play. They're the next division lower. <laughs> like, they beat Washington at Washington That's as a crazy. top 20 team. It's like the record is like 305 that like an, an FCS team against a, 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 a Power 5 school. It's just unbelievable. And then to add, you know, BYU beats Arizona. Arizona, Utah State beat Washington State, Nevada beats Cal, Purdue beats Oregon State, Kansas State beats Stanford. What does Washington, Arizona, Washington State, Cal, Oregon State, Stanford all have in common? They're all Pac-12 schools. They all lose outside, and a lot of these aren't even you know great programs. Yeah. So again, it's going to be one of those things when the SEC, when we get to our college football playoffs, remember there's four teams in the playoffs. When the SEC says, okay, we're going to get two in there, they might get there too because even if you're the UCLA's and the USC's, it's like, who do you beat? The team, the other teams in the conference are terrible. And again, in the Clemson, if Clemson beats everyone else in the ACC, we're like, who else did you beat? You didn't really have any good wins. So that's why the SEC is going to say, wow, look, we're going to get Georgia in, we're going to get Alabama in, we're going to get another team in, Florida in. Like, they're going to want to get like four teams in the <laughs> They don't know that. Um, UCLA took on, on LSU. That was the one, that, yeah. was, the, that was the game. And, and, and it was a sneaky upset pick, a lot of people. UCLA had. is 10 and 21 in Chip Kelly's first three seasons remember chip kelly was the coach at oregon was the great coach at oregon left there to go to the eagles been criticized you know with the eagles running out of there goes to ucla everybody wants him to be fired and ucla finally got 500 yards of total offense thompson robinson threw for 260 yards they had two running backs zach carbonet 117 yards Britton Braun had brown had 78 yards and this could be the first time that they're they're ranked uh in in like four or five years and uh but when it's released but this was just a big win for ucla but it also LSU, remember two years ago, was one of the best football teams I've ever seen. And people were saying, is this LSU team closer to last year's team, which was a complete disaster, the throwing the shoe, all the crazy things they were doing. They were terrible last year or the year two years ago, and they're now closer to last year. Like, their defense is exactly what they were last year. So this is, again, going back to Alabama, if LSU is one of your top rivals, LSU's defense is terrible. You're going to score 60, 70 points on this LSU defense. Let's talk about uh, USC and San Jose State. Well, I, for that game, I just wanted to mention that because Keaton Slovis, he, we're looking for Heisman Trophy candidates, uh, young for Alabama, probably one of the top favorites. Now, Slovis, who now people talk about maybe the number one draft pick in the draft, he played well. So he had a good game, 256 yards, two touchdowns. We'll see what UCA does, USC does the rest of the year. But if people are saying, like, who's that next superstar quarterback? You're an NFL football fan, and you're like, where's my, who's the quarterback that we're going to draft next year, number one? Slovis with that. So he's the only quarterback that could, Young can't even go out next year. Slovis is the only person that can, play, can be drafted next year that really, I think, had um, a very, very good day. Let's go to the, the Big Ten. We saw Ohio State face off at Minnesota. Well, again, this is a weird game. So C.J. Stroud is uh, this was a freshman, started off slow, but he ended up having 294 yards and four touchdowns. And the speed of Ohio State was just 
out there. I mean, they were, had 74-yard plays, 84-yard plays. Alave, they have two wide receivers, Olave and Wilson, who they both thought were going to go to the pros and went back to Ohio State. I don't like Ohio State play defense. I mean, Minnesota put 31 points up on Ohio State. And that, again, Ohio State, you might say now, is like the second-best team in the country. But, again, if, if you can't play defense and stop Minnesota, you're not going to be stopping Alabama. So nothing that Ohio State did that showed – you know, they look like Ohio State did last year a little bit. Just uh, You saw what Ohio State did in the National Championship game. They're just – they're good, but – I mean, they're better than everyone else, but they have to be at the next level. Now, let's see if C.J. Stroud – uh, he, that was a great first game for him, but what happens? But I did. I was concerned about the fact that uh, Minnesota scored 31 points. So, Ira, you and a lot of other Penn State fans are a little critical of the team this season. We're very worried about going in and trying to beat a tough Wisconsin team, but you guys did enough to get the victory. Well, it's, it was as much as I predicted Penn State was going to lose, and you watch the first half, it was 0-0. Penn State had one first down at halftime, and Wisconsin had first and goal in the two, but uh, they were stopped, and then Arnold uh, Ibikidi, they got a tra- Penn State had a tra- defensive lineman transfer from Temple, a big Ibikidi, who is going to be one of the top 10 players taking the draft. It was unbelievable. All over the field, and that block of the field goal, he it jumped so on, I couldn't believe like I, when I first saw it, I thought it was illegal because he must have stepped on someone to jump to get the <laughs> leverage. He just jumped up there and blocked it. And and then on third and six, so they went down there, had first a goal in the two. Then it was, um, and then they fumbled. Then they had another chance to score. They were under, and they fumbled the handoff. They were, Wisconsin could even hand, like they were so inept that they could not even like have a handoff without it being a disaster. But Penn State was doing absolutely nothing. But in the second half, Penn State had a couple long passes. Uh, it was, And then the final 230, Wisconsin drove down. They had first and goal with a chance to win the game. First and goal in the one, had a legal procedure. Then uh, Mertz was intercepted by Jaquan Britzer, who is a really good defensive back for, the, for Penn State. And they went again and had another chance, and then Joe Brand intercepted it. But for, look at the stats for the game. Wisconsin had 29 first downs. Penn State had 11. Penn State had um, Wisconsin had 174 yards rushing. Penn State had 50. Time possession was 42 to 18. Penn State still wins this game. So I mean, all my Penn State fans are like, "We're great, we're fantastic." <laughs> but Sean Clifford was a disaster at quarterback. Absolutely horrendous. He's exactly what he was last year. Overthrowing his Parker Washington, Jahani Dotson. These are very good wide receivers. These are NFL wide receivers, and he's just like overthrowing. Balls are bouncing. They're sailing. He's terrible. I can't believe Penn State could not get a transfer. There are third string quarterbacks sitting all around college football that could have been a first stringer and 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 be get completing passes for Penn State. I can't believe people didn't transfer to Penn State to challenge Clifford for that job. No, you're right in that sense. And yeah, it was a little anemic watching that on both sides of the ball. I mean, on both both teams, on both sides of the ball. And uh, finally, I think Indiana had some high hopes this year. Iowa went in and kind of smashed those. Well, I think I was up 31-3 at halftime. Iowa for years has had this great defense and sort of an offense can't do much. They can do now. They're, they're, they had, and their defense is even better. And Michael Penix Jr., who's the star of Indiana, came, came back from knee surgery. You saw what he did last year. It was tremendous and it was beating everybody. But it was 14 for 31, three interceptions. Only threw four all last year. And Iowa's defense is just was, was great. And I, from an Iowa perspective, maybe this is the year that they you know, start challenging and you know, win that. This is the year they could win the Big Ten. Uh, but that was very impressive. It was you know, number 18 versus number 17, and you win 34 to 6. Um, let's talk. So this was supposed to be Lincoln Riley now entrenched at Oklahoma. And there was a lot of talk going into this game that this was going to be the best defense that they've had in a long, long time to match up with their always high-powered offense. Didn't really look like that against a team in Tulane that shouldn't even be be able to hang on the field with them. Oh, Tulane was what thirty point underdog, and yeah. they and they played at Oklahoma. It was supposed to play in New Orleans, then was it was then was moved back to Oklahoma. And I don't, you're up forty to twenty two. I, I you know I don't care that they said we let up. They're up forty to twenty two. You don't ever you don't leave, let up. You don't let up enough. The fact that that Tulane had the ball with a chance to win the game on the fifty yard line, and they had a chance. They're down five points. Um, it was just like Oklahoma couldn't run the ball in the second half. I watched a part of that game. Oklahoma was trying to run the clock out, and they couldn't run. You can't run against Tulane. Tulane hasn't beat a top ten school since nineteen seventy three. Like yeah. Tulane is not should not be competing with Oklahoma at all. Spencer Rattler played well, but not where I would expect. Not Heisman him. Trophy. Well. No, because he had chances. Again, there were plays. In the second half, there were plays on third down. He missed some passes where all he had to do was to extend third downs and, and whatever. And he didn't, he didn't, was not, did not blow me away. You don't beat Tulane 40 to 35. And, and you know what the reason why they won? 
is that Oklahoma's kicker tied the NCAA record with three field goals of 50 yards. That's the record. Yeah, so they, they, they would have lost the game with that, not missing the, making those 50-yard field goals. They would have lost to Tulane. And then people say, <laughs> well, where do you think Oklahoma's going to go in the rankings? Well, they should go down. I mean, there's yeah. no way you beat Tulane by five and then think you're going to stay up high in the rankings. So, you know, who might move up a little bit? Our buddies at Coastal Carolina got a big win, 52-14 to 14 over Citadel. I'll be, I'll be following along with them. Anyone who... Um, comes on Iron Sports and we have a good time with. I, I got a root for for the for the remainder of that season. I know, but South Florida had a bad loss too. So we had <laughs> Coach Scott had a tough game there. But um, no, and I we're talking about next week in Coastal Carolina plays Kansas at home. And Coastal Carolina is a twenty six point favorite. Can you imagine that over a Power Five school? The Coastal Carolina is a twenty six point favorite. That's Crazy. amazing. Um, let's. Uh, what else are you looking forward to next week? Um, Oregon's at Ohio State. I really think Ohio State's going to blow them out. I think they're favored by 14. Well, Oregon lost also the top defensive end in the country. Right. Might we, be out for an extended period of time. Exactly. So. Theoro. So that Thibodeau, was a big, yeah. yeah, that was a bad loss. And then Iowa at Iowa State, the underdog has covered this 10 of the last 15. Iowa State is favored by three and a half. We just talked about Iowa. I really like them a lot. I'd say Iowa get, you know, Iowa plus three and a half. I'm telling you, Appalachian State, Miami. And, and I'm not saying that Miami's not that good, but Appalachian State is really, really good. And when you play Alabama, you're not feeling well after that game. Like they beat you up, <laughs> yeah. and I and it's Miami's only favorite by seven and I, well, they're favored by seven and a half. I would take App State and the points in that game, and then Washington and Michigan. Look, I watched Washington. That Washington going into this game was the favored team before this week. Now Michigan's favored by four and a half, but Washington looks horrendous, and I would think is Michigan will win by four and a half. So I like Michigan in that game. So those are, that would be on prediction. Florida is playing South Florida. They're favored by twenty nine. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. About 20 minutes, we'll get to uh, Terry Brennan Jr. Let's move on to golf, Ira. And Patrick Cantlay, I, I think it's safe to say now, now that we've seen everything, you know, in perspective, he probably was the best golfer this year. Best golfer in the world, and he's going to be our champion this year. Well, the FedEx champion. I don't know if I would say he... I think you have to do... I Four think, wins on tour, you know? That's, I, I, the, you're right. I think that the challenge would be does Rom. Rom being Rom number one in the world, and he yeah. won the U.S. Open. And so I think that's where I think the competition is with that. And he lost a win, too. He would have had four wins also, but he got the... the so the, I would think it's draw. between those two. But I think what we were looking from Candelay the past two weeks, the fact that he held off Bryson DeChambeau in the, in the BMW championship... Yes. And then now going, it was really, if you watch this the last three days, it was just Rom and Cantlay for three days playing match play for almost three entire Basically. days and just holding him off. And, and Rom just could not make, Rom just didn't putt well enough to win. I mean, Rom had some putt birdie chances and wasn't able to, but Cantlay, it, we're seeing how Cantlay's just a great putt. And then on 17, the smart, you know, he came into 17 with a two-shot lead and he had, a, we could call this a great bogey. Because he goes into 17 and gets the bogey, but he, if he, that could have been, he was a, it was a mess. He could have had a triple bogey on that hole. And because uh, he drove to the right on 17, he clipped a tree, and he went in the rough and was able to save that. And then on 18, when Rom was already in the fairway, then Cantlay matched him. And then they both were like, you know, p- you know uh, putting for, well, I guess Rom was chipping for Eagle, and Cantlay was putting for Eagle. But that was, he was able to match up. So again, Cantlay has just proven that, you know, on these, in these, you know, who, like we talked about, Earlier, could he play in the Ryder Cup? I mean, he's perfect at this type oh, of yeah, form. Oh, yeah, this is right Because he's valley. going against Bryson, going against, you know, hole for hole, putt for putt, just great. And over Rom, and that was just a tremendous performance. And Rom was bogey-free over the last 28 holes, but he only had two birdies uh, for it. But Kelly won, like, $15 million. I mean, this whole thing about how the FedEx points are done and everything like that. So, But just a great win. Remember, he started at 10 under. Finau was 8 under. Bryson was 7 under. Rom at 6. So he started with the lead. If you just finished the tournament, Rom would have won if they would have just played. But that's, of course, not how they did it. So, um, But Kevin Na finished well. He has 16 under. Justin Thomas was at 15 under. Xander Shoffley at 14 under. Uh, and Patrick Reed played. I mean, people after he was in the hospital for a week came back and actually uh, played okay for this tournament. Patrick Cantlay's last 15 rounds are all sub 70 and only three of those are 69s so we're 68 and lower say that again 15, last 15 rounds and and this is sub not playing 70. and this is yeah, playing this and, is not playing joke tournaments yeah this is this is playing the <laughs> toughest tournaments and the, it's just unbelievable that's i saw that stat i couldn't believe it. that's like unconscious golf like that's where he is dialed in and i think you know it's kind of we've talked about before we've had golfers on that say like you hear tiger woods something happened to him across the, the course it gets in your head 
And I think that this has to be a little bit in golfers' heads right now that this guy's not going to miss any putts, and he's going he's going to match me on everything I do. I can't make a mistake because he's not. Well, I think this leads off. I, what makes it – this year we saw Shoffley winning at the Olympics, the gold medal. You can't delay win this. Just Morikawa had got his second major. Dustin Johnson's going to be back. I mean, Bryson had this move. You have so many big names now in golf. It is just – it's great. winning the Masters. Yes, the and it's, band, it's like the, the, the names are there, and it just seems that the depth of the, of the top golfers, it's just so many extra golfers. So every tournament you're looking at – 15, 20 people that really legitimately have a chance to win this tournament. It's exciting. It's exciting to watch, and it makes golf is. And, and if, you know, it, it's a shame that Tiger could have stayed healthy and been have, you know, competing against all this that was going on. It would have been great to see what would happen. But, uh, and then Phil had that great win this year, you know, at the PGA. Now, this is it. We're done with the, the year, per se. The year is over. Um, and the only thing we have coming up at the end of the month is the Ryder Cup, which we'll uh, talk about. You know, going yeah, so up. how do you think this is going to shake out? This is not going to be easy for them to make their, their selections here. Well, Morikawa, DJ, Bryson, Brooks, JT, and Kenley are all short. Those six. Tony Finau, Shoffley, and Spieth have to be, and that's nine. Um, I think Harris English was fourth at the U.S. Open, uh, third at the U.S. Open, won the Travelers. I think he's in. That's ten. Berger uh, was seventh at the – Berger's played He was right. so consistent this yeah, year. Seven, seventh at the U.S. Open, eighth at the British Open, five at the World Golf Championships, 11 in this tournament. He has to be in. And then so I think you're, you're – I think you have to put Patrick Reed in. I think if Reed's he's very in, good in the format. In this tournament, and I, I think it's English Reed and Berger, and then you don't you leave Simpson out, Scheffler out, Kevin. Nall. I would have put Mickelson in. I think it's a huge mistake. Mickelson said he's going to be now he's going to be a captain, but I don't know why in this type of format. I, I don't know why Mickelson doesn't play. I, I don't know if it was his decision or was their decision. I don't know what the reason was, but I have no idea why Mickelson's not playing. He's not going to be able to like he's playing well now. Like put him in. Like I, I just think it's wrong not to put him in this, but. Let's uh, let's get into tennis, Ira. You took in a lot of U.S. Open, so I, I want to know a little bit about this before we, because I like hearing about you know the what it takes to, to actually attend these events. So, could, were you able to buy a pass that enabled you to be able to go every day? Once you're in, do you have to buy seats for certain events, or can you just kind of watch everything once you pay a set fee? How does that work? Well, the main stadium you see on television a lot is the Ash Stadium. That's the one that's a sits the eighteen thousand. If you don't have a ticket for Ash, you're not there. And you have to, you can't buy it. It's one day. It's a morning session. It's an afternoon and a night session. Then Armstrong has an afternoon and night session too. But if you could sit in the upper decks for that, if you just have a, if you have a normal ticket, any. So if you if you have an Ash ticket, you go to Armstrong. But then you're sitting. You have like the best seat in Ash. But if you go to Armstrong, you're going to sit in the upper deck. <laughs> so and then, but the strategy that I use a lot is there's a stadium called the Grandstand that seats about like six, seven thousand. And I like buying those tickets. They're cheaper, like $75, $80. You can buy those tickets. And the first four days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if you ever go to the Open, those are the days to go because there's 120, uh, 128 players. And they're all have to play. So you're putting great players everywhere. But by the time, after four days, they stop using all the other courts. Mm-hmm. I stayed in the grand. I kept getting great grandstand. And my grandstand matches were great. So I didn't walk around as much as I usually do with the other courts because they use eight, nine, ten other courts are playing. I like the grandstand courts because I like sitting there. It's, a, it's like the Wimbledon. It's a circle. Uh, it's an oval. I, I think that's pretty cool. But I think the key is, and then you sometimes stay out. The tickets this year were cheaper for me to go to Ash. Like, I want to see Djokovic play. So there was Djokovic. I saw him two times play in Ash. Like, Djokovic will always play in Ash. So I, I went and paid for that. But it wasn't as expensive because you don't have a lot of foreign uh, tourists that are there building up the ticket prices. And But, of course, the U.S. Open, the prices are still too high. They don't, like, it's half empty, and they won't let the prices go down. Even if you're trying to sell it on StubHub, it doesn't let you go lower. Really? You can't sell for $5. You can't, there's like, but and the limit is like sometimes like 150 each. Uh, match is different but i think that was the key is that i was spending so i would buy like i would go to ash at night and then like maybe the grandstand during the day or armstrong at night and then do do it that way but it was i i love staying there the whole time like it was just absolutely amazing to go and it's fun because you can like there was one that my fun night was i was at the grandstand for a match between fritz and brooksby two young americans they played one set it took like an hour and a half i went over to see Djokovic play in uh, in Ash, and that match was over like an hour and a half. And then I came back and watched the one set, and then watched the, uh, the grandstand, watched the final set of the Brooksby match, and then went back to Ash to see the final set of the women's match, which was, just, uh, which was a great final set of Amasova and Klistova, which are two really good tennis players, that women's female tennis players. So it was fun to just bounce back between those. So let's talk about uh, Djokovic here. You were able to see him in. It looks like he he's not playing his best tennis, but he's gonna he's had an easy path, maybe going forward and what he's already gone through. He has an easy path. He's had an, he's going to run into the hard path. Not tonight. He plays Brooksby tonight, but he should win because he's a twenty year old American who. 
but um, he hasn't. But his first match, we saw him against this guy, Rue, from Netherlands, 18 years old. And he, it was so, in the middle of the match, he started getting cramps in his legs. And he tried, I give him credit for like hanging in there, but it's like, Djokovic's 34 years old, and the 18-year-old's the one who hardly can even just stand in there. And then he's yelling at his mother. Like, it was his mother's fault that he somehow was getting cramps in, in his legs. And it's like, and then he's, like, screaming at his mom. Like, that's not a good scene. And then he posted on Instagram pictures of him partying, like, two days ago. Well, maybe you're not partying two days ago, and you don't get cramps in your legs. And maybe when you're 18, you're playing a 34-year-old. And he was like, so he, he just stood there. And Djokovic had trouble with him. It was weird. Djokovic did not look good because all he was doing was, like, trying to serve, like, as hard as he possibly could serve. And then when Djokovic served, he tried to hit the ball as hard. And he did get lucky. On some shots, he was actually hitting the ball. Like, it won some points. And Djokovic was discombobulated and didn't really play well. And the next match, he played uh, Carlos Meister and won. But, again, he's making mistakes. This is not the Djokovic that I know in terms of. But he tends to do this at tournaments. In the beginning, he wins, but it's not so dominant. He beat Nishikori. But it's, he's going to have to step it up. if he want, Right now, we're going to talk about Medvedev, but he's not playing at the level. But this is everything. This tournament is Djokovic. Djokovic is going for the Grand Slam. has been done six, since 1967. He's going to have 21 majors, passing Federer and Nadal. They're all tied at 20. So this is history. Like This is total, absolute history to watch. And there's a lot of pressure on Djokovic. And, uh, that's, and, the, and the challenge for him is now that Zarev won. He's going to have to probably play Berrettini, and then he's going to have to play Zarev, and then he's going to have to play Medvedev. So after today, he has Three matches to win, and all three are going to be really, really hard. Um, you were kind of impressed with the young American men uh, in, in this tournament. You, we thought maybe the women would do really well, but the men stepped up. No, Opeka is winning today in, in a match in terms of getting to the quarterfinals. Uh, Riley Opeka, who we saw at Delray. J- Jensen Brooksby came out of nowhere. I saw him at the match with Taylor Fritz. And, J- and Jensen Brooksby was someone who really wasn't on the radar of anything when he was 16, 17, and played. He is just fire. I have pictures. If you go on, you know, Ira on sports, on Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, I, whenever it's a backhand, it looks like he's punching. Like he looks like a fighter. I mean, it's, <laughs> he's so into it. And it was a great five set match when he get, when he gets Fritz and then he won the next match. So that's why he's facing Djokovic tonight. But, and then TFO, who we'll talk a little bit later, played great. And then you have Alpaca playing great. So really the Americans are surprising in this tournament. This is one of the first Grand Slam tournaments in a while that the Americans, I mean, Isner got knocked out early and Query and some of these other Americans we've seen for a while were knocked out. And Jack Sock even played well. Jack Sock made it to the round of 16 where he lost his error uh, two nights ago. So it was, it was one of those things where I think the Americans have played well. And playing even better than them, are you kind of taken, a, taken aback by the Italian performance? Well, I... The young Italians are Matteo Berrettini is the fifth seed. So I watched two of his matches. He played on grandstand. He is fun to watch. Total power. If you remember from Wimbledon, he really goes for it. He's, first of all, he has like movie star good looks. I mean, he is definitely, you're like, what is this movie star doing out there playing tennis? I mean, he's, and, but he pounds the ball and he just plays with so much passion and energy and hits it so hard. And he plays well. And Sinner, who we saw lose to Zarev today, is 18 years old. And he's an up-and-coming. And then there's a zillion other, it seems like, Italians. Every, every quarter, there's another Italians. But it was so funny. Berrettini played uh, this uh, player, Molden. And he, this guy, Moldian, got to every single ball. And it was funny because at the beginning of the match, Berrettini was like, every time he made a shot, he was like celebrating. And then whenever, then sort of Moldian started celebrating too. And then the umpire yelled at him for celebrating too much after he got a shot. And I was like, what? Don't come for it. You know, he was celebrating. So they're arguing what's the level of celebration you're allowed to have after you <laughs> hit a good shot. But that was, it was, that was exciting about that. And then, you know, again, in that top half of the draw, what it's going to be is after Djokovic wins, he's probably going to play Berrettini. And then the, we're going to be, because right now we're only down to the final. After today, there'll only be eight men and eight women left. And uh, so Djokovic's going to play Berrettini. And then Zarev would play Alpelka if, if Alpelka hangs on right now and, and, uh, and beats Lloyd Harris. So, but it really looks like it's going to be, that'll be like the quarterfinals. So we've only got about 11 minutes or so uh, until we have to get to Terry Brennan Jr. But Medvedev, he's kind of got a, a real pass here. He's not playing fantastic, doing enough to win, but he hasn't beaten anybody. I would say he's, he has, he's played absolutely nobody in this. He has the easiest draw I've ever seen. He's now playing a qualifier in the quarterfinals, someone who's ranked 200 in the world. And that but, never happens. But, but it, he hasn't played uh, one-seeded player. Evans is the only one. But he is playing great. He is, to me, playing as well as you possibly could play. He is, his, he's, he's dominating. He's in and out within, like, uh, you know, he has, no one's got to five games on him. His matches last, like, an hour and a half. And I've watched two of his matches, and he has this weird – he has a great serve – it, his, his serve is amazing, 
But after that, his ground strokes are just tremendous. And so if he gets in trouble, he just serves four or five aces. So he can do everything on the court. His serve is better than Djokovic. His serve is better than Zarev. His serve is better than everybody. But he also has the ground strokes, and he's tall. He's like six seven, so he has all this power. Uh, it's just amazing. Same thing happened in Australian Open. He rolled Djokovic, bet Djokovic in the final. He was the favorite, and Djokovic killed him in the final. Mm-hmm. So it would be interesting to see what will happen. But he got lucky because, like, Tsitsipas got knocked out in, in, the, in this bottom half of the draw and some of the other players. So that's why he really hasn't had to play anybody because everybody who was supposed to be in that bottom half of the draw lost. So what happened with Tsitsipas in the bathrooms? Well, they can't, are, they can't yell at now the referees because of uh, the chair umpires or the linesmen because it's all computer. So even if you don't like a call, the computer made the call, they put it up, that's it. So there's no more yelling mm-hmm. like macro yelling, you're crazy, this and that. So now this, the thing is that people, you're allowed to take two bathroom breaks and you're supposed to just go to the bathroom. The bathrooms are right off the court where Tsitsipas is playing. But Tsitsipas goes into the bathroom and it's like for 10, 12 minutes. And so now people against Andy Murray and Andy Murray, who is the master of doing all these things, calls him out on it after he lost in five sets. And he's screaming at, you know, at Tsitsipas in terms of, like, these breaks are ridiculous. You're not even allowed to get coaching. But he brings his entire bag in there with his cell phone. And then they go, and his dad is, like, t- is, is coaching, is, like, on the cell phone while he's, you know, talk, t- you know, typing text at somebody. And he goes, I was texting my wife. I wasn't texting him. But you have all this going on. And then during the match, he got called for coaching because everyone sees his dad is not shy about with his hand signals and everything. It looks like he's, like, a, on a, like a third baseman coach <laughs> kind of thing. So you have that going on. And everyone's now calling him out. It's almost the Bryson DeChambeau situation, where but more of the players on this side are really calling him out for what he's doing, and they're really critical of that, of the coaching and whatever. And he's the number three player in the world. Like, you don't need this. You don't need all this other stuff. And uh, that was the happen. And then the big thing is that Alvarez beat him. So he lost then to an 18-year-old, and he was doing all this bathroom breaks with the 12 minutes and 30 minutes, and it became a big problem. And and. And then they asked Sasha Zarev about it. And Sasha Zarev just had announced that I'm going to give you all the tournaments he's done that. And he listed like 12 tournaments that Tsitsipas has done that in. So it was, uh, so that's where he's one of the top players, but he thinks he's out of the tournament because Alvarez, the 18-year-old, the doll protege, uh, beat him. Um, Francis TFO has had kind of an up and down few years, but uh, looked really good uh, this, this past week. He had a, a phenomenal week. Now, we so had TFO on when he won Delray, and yeah. I thought he was going to be, he was at that point... 25 in the world, 30 in the world, getting up there. And he really, the last year and a half, hasn't played well. And it has really fallen down on the 60 and the 70 level. But he got Wayne Ferrer as his coach. And now he is playing great. He's a different Francis Tiafo. He is awesome out there. And on Wednesday, I saw him beat Pella at Armstrong. But then his big match was he played number five seed Rublev. And that was the, it's so exciting to be there. Right in the middle of Ash at night. It went on until 2 in the morning. And Rublev is a Russian full of energy, full excitement. The fans were going nuts. TFO, he's taking his shirt off after every break. He's taking his shirt. I mean, he was jumping up and down. He's like Hulk Hogan, like putting his hand to his ear, like getting the crowd louder. And and TFO and Rublev had a chance in the third set tiebreaker. He had set point to go up two sets to one. TFO held, he double falled. TFO then went up the third set, lost the fourth, one and five. After he won, he like he took his shirt off. He did LeBron style, jumped on the, the stands <laughs> and was like going crazy. And the fans were, if you're out there at two in the morning, you're going to be pretty excited at a match. You've been drinking a lot. So everyone was going nuts and that was good. And then last night, I stayed there to watch him play. Felix Agar Alassane, they call him FAA, who's a 21-year-old Canadian who's very, very good. And uh, TFO won the first set. But I think playing the night before to like, by 3 a.m. was uh, tired him out because then he ended up dropping the next three sets and lost in, in four sets. But it was uh, but it was a good tournament for TFO. I think it, he had a lot to build on. Uh, fans loved him. He's a tremendous fan favorite now, and uh, it just and he has everything right because when he's going against FAA, he says this is going to be box office. I'm so excited. He's box <laughs> office. Like he was all pumped about that. What's going on with uh, Naomi Osaka? Well, as I predicted, and I'm going to just pat myself on the back. I said mentally. It's un- I understand that she's struggling mentally and understand those things, but the, her opponents don't care. Like, no. they want to win. They're out there practicing at 6 in the morning. They're whatever. If you're, if you're playing an opponent and their knee's hurting, you're going to move the ball around. And if mentally they're weak and mentally, they're going to do the same thing. She won her first round match was against a nobody. Then her second round was a walkover, which I thought was really weird because why would someone not want to play? They said she wasn't feeling well, her opponent, when you have a chance in front of Ash to play. I was there like 20 minutes before the match to watch it. And she didn't, the opponent didn't show up, so they switched it up. They didn't show up. They canceled the, the tournament. They walked it, withdrew Magic. from the tournament, withdrew, withdrew from the tournament. So she didn't play the second round. So she's playing Layla Fernandez in the third round. Layla is from Canada. She probably weighs like 75 pounds <laughs> and she's full of energy. She's 18 years old. It was right after the Alvarez match, which was interesting, another 18 year old. And she is just, so the first set, 
it's like she's playing great, and Osaka is being Osaka in terms of making these great shots, but it was still 5-5. Five, five. She breaks Fernandez at 5-5, five, five, Wick goes 6-5, and then serves out 7-5. Second set, same thing happened. 5-5, five, five, and then she breaks it, and the person I was with said, this match is boring, and I go, well, it'll be over in a minute. <laughs> and then... Uh, then she double faults. She misses a shot. Fernandez is another. And suddenly her racket is flying. She's going nuts. She's screaming everything. And then she's like pouting. And then she ends up losing that. So 6-6, six, six, they go to a tiebreaker. And I said to my friend, I go, if she loses the tiebreaker, she's losing this match. And then during the tiebreaker, she, there was points in the tiebreaker. She would just stand against the wall. And Fernandez ready to serve. And she wouldn't even turn around. Like they were, like the umpire would say, you've got to start to play. Like she wouldn't even want to play. She had a total meltdown. She, of course, melted down in the third set. And then... After in the press of the tournament, she didn't even give Fernandez any credit for the match. Said that she can't play anymore. She doesn't find joy in tennis. It's not happy. She doesn't. Ha- she's not happy when she wins. She's upset when she loses. It was, you know, again, I think that, you know, I think she's a very bad sport. But what really hurt her, when she threw her racket, the fans were, of course, cheering her the entire match. Yeah. When she threw her racket, the fans booed her. And I think that was a shock. And I've said this on my show. She's not used to playing with fans. She won the Australian Open, won the U.S. Open Open without fans. There were no fans in the stands. And I think when the fans turn on her, she's been built up in the media as being this, you know, as she's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, lit the Olympic torch, all these other things. But she's, you know, fans booing her. But, yeah, if you throw your racket, and she just didn't throw a racket on the racket. She threw it across the court. And I think it twice. <laughs> and I think that was one of the things where the fans saw that that was not good behavior. And they booted. And I, I think she couldn't. She couldn't handle that and just snowballed against her. And whereas other players are able mentally to be able to do this. And, you know, I I sent you the video of the Rocky and uh, Mr. T when they were playing. I mean, she's made $100 million playing tennis. She's rich. She doesn't really feel like she wants to train that hard to do this. Whereas these other players, they haven't made all this money. They haven't got us. They want to win. And they're going to do whatever they can to win. Ira, we got just about four minutes, so we have to get to uh, Terry Brennan Jr. here on Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. Talk a little baseball. Yankees got shellacked earlier today by Toronto, who's now just three games uh, behind them in the wild card hunt. Boston and uh, Tampa Bay, barn burner going on there. We'll see who's going to pull out of this, but it's getting really tight in the AL East. It's getting tight because I, I think it's getting tight in terms of the fact that the Yankees they cannot stay, you know, the Yankees are nervous because the Yankees might lose their wild card spot. I don't, Tampa Bay, the next, over the next 11 games plays Toronto and Detroit. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to run around with that division and run run away with it. But the Yankees now have lost six out of eight. They lost two out of three to Baltimore and uh, they play the Mets. This is going to be hard. And and so this in the next weekend, uh, it'll be very emotional, September 11th, all those things. So I think in terms of the East, you're looking at a situation where the wild card is now open and play and the Yankees could be out of it where I thought it was going to be Yankees and Red Sox the whole time. What about uh, anything else in the AL? I mean, we're, we're pretty much wrapped up to where we're going, I'd say, in the AL. Right. In terms of, well, I think, the, I think we're wrapped up in terms of the Astros, White Sox, and Tampa Bay winning the divisions. I think it's the wild card now that is more open in terms of what we're, what we're looking at in terms of the Mariners won three backs, and then three back at it. It's like the Yankees have let everybody back into play, playing poorly like they have. They had that 13-game win streak, and now have let everything back. So in the NL, it's a little bit different, and we're starting to see a little bit of a shakeup in the NL East. Well, the Braves, I'm going to say this. Don't get so, don't, they, they had a tough stretch the last two weeks. Their next nine games are with Washington, Miami, and Colorado. They're going to win eight out of nine. I think, so the Phils are two back, but they play then at Milwaukee. And the Mets now have, you know, some games against the Yankees, whatever. So I really think it's, it's, it's really, some of these teams have decided not to play baseball. And everyone's beating them. And the Washington, Miami, and Colorado are three of those teams. So I really think that you're going to see the Braves, uh, I, I think they'll, they'll win this division. Brewers are way ahead of the Reds. And the Giants and Dodgers, I mean, the Dodgers are, that was, it was weird. The, you thought the Dodgers was going to take that lead. They, they actually took, you know, tied the Giants. Yeah, they tied it for and the then first they time. Tied, and then they lost. And, but again, the, the Dodgers now play the, Cod- the Cards and the Padres the next seven games. And, uh, and, and, the, and the Giants have Colorado and Chicago. But I, I still think the Dodgers will pull away with division. But the, the, the loser will get the wild card spot. And then it's going to be open for everybody else in terms of who's the Reds, the Padres, the Phils, maybe the Mets, you know, everyone else. Again, that, that last in each, uh, each league, the last wild card spot is like up for, up for grabs. Ira, NFL, three days away. Don't know if you saw this, but Houston has named uh, Terod Taylor as their starter over Deshaun Watson. So I, I don't know what that means. Maybe the league has levied some kind of penalty. Maybe they're just benching him. But I'm not really sure what's happening uh, with that. But what are you looking forward to here uh, week one as we get started on Thursday? I think Dallas at Buccaneers, I, I, this Bucks minus 7.5, I like Tampa Bay in that game. I think, Buc- I think Tampa Bay is going to have a good first start at home. I think, they're, I think Dallas with Dak, you're going to see Dallas, I think, a little struggle. They haven't played any of their starters at all in the preseason. They're going to struggle. Steelers at Bills, 
I like the Steelers, of course. I can't go fake against them. <laughs> Jets at Panthers. Um, Darnold versus old team. Uh, old team. And I think Carolina. And I, I actually do like the Jets. I, there's something about the Jets I like. I'm sorry. The Jets could, could go two and two here. They've got an easy open to the season. From there, they could lose every game. But I'm not going to be shocked if the Jets are two and three, three and two after five weeks. Houston at Jacksonville. Jacksonville's favorite by three. Um, I, 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 Houston's terrible. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, like. I, Jacksonville's going to win this game. Like I would bet Jacksonville give Jacksonville minus a point. Nice uh, start to uh, Trevor Lawrence's career. Powder puff versus Houston. And what about Arizona, Tennessee? Tennessee's favored by three. Um, that, this is interesting because this is where uh, do you really believe in Tennessee or do you believe in Arizona? I do. Who, which one do you believe in? Tennessee. <laughs> I, I do too. Well, it's time for Kyler Murray and Kingsbury to step forward or maybe we have to start looking at, at that this isn't, we're not going to win championships with this. You and I think are going to disagree on this next game. Chargers in Washington. Washington favored by a point. I'll take and Washington. I, oh, I thought you liked the Chargers I, on that. I really do like the Chargers. I mean, people are higher higher on the Chargers than we are, but I, Washington's a real, real defense. And Ryan Fitzpatrick win, wins games early in the season. And what about Eagles and Falcons? You know, Eagles and Falcons. I I think Eagles are terrible. Eagles I, are I, really bad. And I think the Falcons you're getting th- you're giving up three and a half points. And, I would do it. And I yeah, I think Falcons at home winning this. I think they're going to win by a touchdown on that game. Um, just a couple more games. We'll run by Seattle at Indy. Oh, I love this bet. This could be my bet of the year. Indy, you're, you're Seattle plus two and a half. I don't think Indianapolis. I don't think Carson Wentz is that good. Like I, no. I love this game. I'm with you. Seattle's going to win outright by a lot. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> think they're going to. Well, play. they're a real defense in, in Indy, but I'm. The, I don't think their offense is very good at all. No, and they're new, and they they have to get used to the play calls and everything. Minnesota at Cincinnati. Cincinnati plus two and a half. Minnesota's favored by two and a half. So, uh, since so Minnesota, I, I, this could go either way. I don't think either teams. Gonna have more than seven wins, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, how about uh, I like this game, San Francisco plus seven and a half at Detroit. I give fourteen if I was San Francisco over Detroit. Detroit's not a football team. Yeah, they're, like, they're they're really bad. I think the only thing question is their basketball team worse than their football team. Like they're both and their, and their baseball team's team is the worst. Bad. In, yeah, yeah the it's worst. a bad time to be it's in Detroit. A, <laughs> what, what about uh, Browns and Chiefs? I love, I love, I love the Chiefs in this game. I think the Browns. I think people are putting giving a little too much love to the Browns, and I think the Chiefs with the retooled offensive line, and I think their defense, and I think this is a this is a thing where they lose the Super Bowl and they're kind of come back hungry like that. I think last year they, they won the Super Bowl and they were sort of a little soft. And they remember how they, they lost. They won those the games that were closer. I think they're going to play. I think losing the Super Bowl is going to make the Chiefs actually start to blow these teams out early. I, I, you're going to see enormous blowouts. Like, I think the Chiefs are mad. Like, they realize that yeah. they gave away a chance to win. Like, the Chiefs were thinking this was good, their chance to three-peat, to win three Super Bowls in a row. And I think they're upset. So I, th- I, like, the, I like the Chiefs in that game. Patriots and Finns, and the Patriots are favorite here. I, yeah. I'll take I, the Dolphins all day. No, I like New England. I think they haven't played a game. Together. I know, it's but it's such a new team. I know. There's something about it. I think it's a great game, though. Like I'm so excited about this game. I, I'm very excited for because you game. get Mac Jones versus Tua, and Belichick has all the players back. And is this going to be his real team? I, I, I do. I actually do. I like. I trust Brian, Brian Flores at home in this one. I, I, I could see this one going. Home teams winning. You know, each of these games. I think uh, this Giants and and Broncos game is going to be ugly. Oh. It's unbelievable. I mean, but I still, I, I'm just not sold on the Giants. Like, there's nothing about the Giants that makes me feel, I don't like Daniel Jones, a quarterback. I think their defense is a lot the of problems. The might be the worst in football. I just don't get it. And Denver, I think, with a good defense, like, Denver doesn't have any offense, but I think on their defense perspective, I think they're going to stop him. So I think it'll be like one of those, like, 21 nothing games. Like, I think, <laughs> I think Denver wins 21 nothing. I could see, like, 17-9, something <laughs> just ugly like that. Saints in Green Bay, four is the line. It should be more. I, I don't, don't think the Saints are that good. I thought it was a mistake. I, I, maybe someone else has a different line than that. I, maybe I, I pulled it on CBS line, and I, I can't. How in the world is Green Bay only fair by four points? I, 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 the Saints, this valuing a Sean, I think there must be like five points on Sean Payton. Like they think is he's like the greatest yeah. coach in the league. There's no Jameis Winston's their quarterback. Like they've lost yeah, four players. And there's no way Green Bay is bringing everybody back. You have Aaron Rodgers, who has a lot to prove. Like, this is one of those games. Again, the same thing with Kansas City. Like, they could win 52 to 14 this game. Like, there's. Jameis Winston's going to throw two picks. I don't <laughs> get this. I don't get this line. And there's nobody else. They, they're missing Michael Thomas. Like, I, I, I cannot believe. When I saw four, I said, there's no way it's four. No way. Yeah, it should be like seven points. That, that and the Seattle game are the ones where I think, look, if you have a team and you're only giving up four points, and I think you're like, Two touchdowns better than them. Maybe, you know, so I like Green Bay in that game a lot. What about uh, Rams and Bears? I, I really like the Rams in this game. I think the Bears. I think the Rams are going to be really good. I think the Rams will be good. I think the Stafford change. This is the one thing where teams made changes and everything where I think it's going to really work for them. They've always had a good defense. And I, 
never been a Jared Goff fan. I think Jared Goff cost them so many games and cost them so many points and missed so many wide receivers. I love Matthew Stafford. I like his fight. I really think that was a great trade. I think that alone is worth a touchdown a game. And as much as the Bears, I think, look, the Bears have a great defense, but it's not perfect. And I think the Rams are just going to outscore them in that game. And finally, Ravens-Raiders. Um, weird game. I don't have a feel on that one. I, I think the Raiders playing at home for the first regular season game in, in, the, in Las Vegas, that's going to be so exciting. The crowd's going to be nuts. It's going to be, it'll be great. I mean, but um, do I, am I sold on the, I don't know. I don't know where to go on that game. Um, uh, let's do auto racing real quick before we get to uh, Terry Brennan. Uh, it was just exciting. Formula One, uh, Matthew Verstappen beat Hamilton. Uh, the key thing in that race was the first race in the Netherlands since 1985. And Matthew Verstappen's from the Netherlands, so the place was going nuts and crazy for him to win that race. And uh, that, was, that was where the excitement was. And it was weird because Hamilton and Bottas were both Mercedes and Verstappen because his teammate would, had a problem in qualifying. So it was like two versus one. And he was able to hold them up, ran a great race, was able to hold them off. And now they're mad at Bottas, so they're actually replacing Bottas with this guy, George Russell. So Hamilton next year is going to have a different partner on his team. You only have two people per team. And then Danny Hamlin, who had a really tough week because his – ex-girlfriend, criticized in the media, all this other stuff. He finally got his first win over the, over the year and, and in the first playoff race over Kyle Larson. And it was weird because a lot of the other playoff, the people in the playoffs, the 16 other drivers, they four of them crashed. So they were out of the race early. But uh, next week is Richmond, but in terms of the playoffs. Talking to Terry Brennan Jr. about his father's book called uh, Though the Odds Be Great and Small, about Notre Dame's 1957 comeback season. Terry Brennan... A senior was the coach of Notre Dame, and he's still alive. He's still there. But from 1954 to 1958 and had some of the most amazing wins in the history of Notre Dame, which is a school that's had uh, a lot of great wins. So, Terry, thanks a lot for coming on and talking about your father's book. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So the one thing about Notre Dame is you sort of grew up, of course, growing up being the son of the coach. Uh, you saw everything about Notre Dame, but the idea of the mystique was created in the in the 1918 to 1930. We're really going back far, but with the Newt Rockney, the fact that he won three national titles. I mean, we always think everybody grows up now saying Notre Dame's Notre Dame, but you know, before 1918, Notre Dame wasn't Notre Dame, but now we're just it's it's symbolic with uh, football a lot. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, my grandfather, my dad's father played for Notre Dame in 1910. <laughs> so it was it was before the heyday. And then um frankly he Leahy came and was the coach from 41 to 43, uh won the national mm-hmm. championship. And then your dad, the one thing with your dad not only was he coach, but he was a star player on the team from 46 to 49 winning three national championships. Yeah, actually he he started in 1945 as a 17-year-old freshman with the war underway. And probably one of the only reasons, well, not the only reason, but a big reason he was there, he's 17 and couldn't be drafted. <laughs> and uh, they, Notre Dame took it on the head a couple of times that year, particularly from the service academies, which were at full strength. And they played, uh, they played teams like Great Lakes, which was a combination of college players and professional players. So it was, it was a crazy time to be playing college football. That, and it was crazier the next year, 1946. Uh, Notre Dame had 200 guys go out for football, and my dad and Bill Fisher were the only two guys that kept their positions. And, you, know, you made a point in the book about Leahy. Was, he took two years off from Notre Dame, or a year off, and, and was like going around, and he was in the military. So he just was, mm-hmm. you know, was looking for talent. He was, it gave him a way to find all these people to recruit to come, and that's why Notre Dame you know, won those three national titles, and he was 36-0-2 in, three, you know, three, in those three years. Yeah, well, and, and the GI Bill helped, and the and the NCAA allowing everyone to transfer wherever they wanted to, and you know I always say that you know if you're if you were in a foxhole during World War II, you were still getting the Notre Dame game on uh, Armed Forces Radio, so the, a lot of these guys took it to heart and, and transferred. Right, and then your dad was involved in what some people call the greatest game ever played, the zero-zero mm-hmm. tie with Army, and then the next year he returned the kick for a touchdown. So it was like so he is in lore of Notre Dame, just as a player, very famous. Yes. Yeah. I, I had a bet with a friend of mine. We were at one of the games and uh, he, I said, he said to me, if I asked somebody who ran the opening kickoff back against army in 1947, will anybody know? And this was probably 1980. And I said, yeah, somebody's going to know. And sure enough, three guys knew. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was, 
So your dad goes, he plays at Notre Dame, and then he's becoming a lawyer and all these other things. And, he, and as he and he's also then coaching in high school, and he wins. Mm-hmm. He's now one of the at, at age twenty to whatever twenty three, twenty four. He's one of the top high school coaches in the country, winning uh, three state titles at Mount Carmel in yeah. Illinois. So it's a, it was a, a crazy. He wasn't even thinking he was going to go into coaching, and then he suddenly becomes this great right. high school football coach. Yeah, he was he was going to law school to join my grandfather's law firm in Milwaukee. And uh, this was a way to pay for law school at night. Uh, and then he's, he ended up with his 1950 teams considered the best high school football team in Illinois. And back then, you didn't have a state championship, but you had a city championship between the public league and the Catholic league. And that game would draw anywhere from 70 to 100,000 people in Soldier Field. And he he won three consecutive titles, which was unprecedented. And that's when I think he began to uh, show up on the radar screen of a lot of different uh, people like the Chicago Cardinals, the Canadian League, and Marquette University interviewed him to be the head football coach. They had a football team back then, and on it went. Well, and then you mentioned how he goes to Notre Dame because they, they brought him in in terms of Joyce and Hershberg, bring him in, Father Joyce and Father Hershberg, but you talk about the push they were pushing lay out because it was sort of like Notre Dame was having this idea that the Ivy league schools, I went to the university of Pennsylvania. So I saw what happened. The Ivy mm-hmm. league schools used to be the top schools in the country. If you look at Harvard, Yale, Penn, they were the number one teams. And then university of right. Chicago, which just got rid of their football and it all, all, you know, they just eliminated football, but Notre Dame sort of mm-hmm. was like, they, they were trying to de-emphasize football, but they didn't want to totally de-emphasize it. And they were like, you know, one foot in one foot out type of situation. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, Father Hesper's strategy was a good one. He he he's he was an academic, he's a scholar, a good administrator, and he said, you know, the future of this school is academics, not being in a football factory. And he was very successful in that strategy where I think he he missed the boat and they it took him about ten years to figure it out, was you could they could coexist with one another. I mean, Northwestern was able to do it, Vanderbilt, Stanford, Rice, Duke. And I think they they realized that they were they were missing out on really their heritage of football and perhaps doing it the right way when it was then being done the wrong way. And uh, yeah, I think that unfortunately they put uh, they they certainly put my father at a disadvantage when there were no scholarships whatsoever uh, scholarship limits in the NCAA at the time, and they unilaterally disarmed basically. And and as you point out, they adapted uh, Ivy League sort of rules between the SAT and no transferring and no redshirting. And then your dad, though, so at 25 years old, 25, it's amazing to think he was named the head coach. They forced Lee out, make your dad the head coach. Mm-hmm. And and then one of the criticisms was they said your dad only won with Lee's players because his first two years was 9-1 and one and 8-2. and two. But really what mm-hmm. it was was they didn't have any scholarships. They were playing with, you know, and the, there was no limits. It, was, it wasn't like they were playing with 50 scholarships and the other teams were playing with 75 they might have been playing with 50 and everyone else was playing with 200 because there was no limits in terms of the mm-hmm. Oklahomas and everybody else, how they could use. No, that's right. And, and what you were playing at that time, which was a crazy way to play football, it was platoon systems where entire offenses and defenses would come in, not individuals. So if you've got, if you've got three platoons like Michigan state did, because they had, you know, hundred plus scholarships, eventually you're going to wear down the guy with fewer scholarship players. And that's, that's what was starting to happen. Uh, he, he did some pretty good recruiting under those restrictions, though, and he didn't really, he didn't mind the academic requirements that were being put in there as long as they were, he had the scholarships in the bodies. And I think he began to show these people that he could actually win in 57 and 58 against just murderous schedules, even while shorthanded. Well, yeah, in 56, he had Paul Hornung. It was just, I mean, amazing yeah. to think now that a team that was 2-8, and eight, so it was one the bad year, and Paul Hornung actually won the Heisman Trophy uh, on a 2-8 mm-hmm. and eight football team. Yeah, he was a phenomenal player. My uh, my dad, uh, you know, Paul passed away last year, or earlier this year, and uh, he, he was one of the best. He had nothing but praise for Paul and never had a problem with him. Thought he was one of the greatest football players ever. And then you talked about the 57 season, which had all those great wins. I mean, they came into the season. They started out 4-0, beating Purdue, Indiana, Army, and Pitt. And you should read the book because you really go back into the idea with the rivalries with these teams and brings them up. And then they lost to Navy and Michigan State. But then the game against Oklahoma, 48 games. It's amazing to think. We're down here in South Florida, so we remember Miami's 34 wins in mm-hmm. 2000-2002. Oklahoma had a 48-game winning streak, two-time national championships. Bud Wilkinson is their coach. 18-point favorite, and you go in and shut out Oklahoma. Amazing. Right. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, that was a tough, I mentioned in the book, that was a tough November. There were five Saturdays, 
and they played five consecutive Saturday games, and their first four were against number three, number four, number five, and number six. And the last game was against Southern Cal, which is never a, an easy game. And uh, with Oklahoma, though, I think they did a – he would tell you if he is that they did a terrific job of scouting what Oklahoma did, and, and everybody knew what they did. They were a terrific running school. Bud Wilkinson was a good friend of his. And he found a way to stop their, their running game, which forced them into a throwing game. And the pass was not their friend. They they were a running team almost. <laughs> it was like watching a track team with well, they, their yardage and their points. Uh, so putting them into, into a position to have to throw the ball, as any coach will tell you, once you can get the guy to play your game or get him out of their game, you, you've got an advantage. And they were able to press that advantage, hold on, and win the game. And then even in 58, they were 6-4. And, and, and you mentioned in mm-hmm. the book, it's like, and now he's 30 years old, he has four kids, and he's mm-hmm. well thought of, no scandal at all, If there, and anything is one of the most highly respected coaches in, in football uh, by everybody, right. and, and all the, you, you pointed out in all the writing, and had a good record, and suddenly they fire him. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, it clearly caught my dad by surprise. It even caught the athletic director by surprise. Moose Krause, who was an All-American basketball and football player at Notre Dame, and coached under Leahy, he knew quite a bit about what it took to play sports at Notre Dame and to coach at Notre Dame. Uh, he wasn't even consulted. The uh, the Holy Cross priest in charge of athletics, uh, Father Edmund P. Joyce, had basically gone around the athletic director, sought out you know advice from people outside the school, and they concluded that they needed an NFL coach to come in and turn this thing around. And that NFL coach turned out to be Joe Coeric who ended up being the worst Notre Dame coach in the history of the program. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, uh, the uh, Father Hesburgh knew what he was. He was an academic, a scholar, and uh, did a wonderful job of raising the academic standards in Notre Dame uh, and, and never pretended to know anything about athletics. The unfortunate thing is, is Joyce actually thought he knew what he was doing, and as it turned out, it didn't appear that he did. Yeah, and then it was like, but when I, I was shocked, I mean, this is the question I've been wanting to ask since I read the book was, He's your father's 30 years old. He has been known, you know, highly, you know, everyone thinks he's great, innovative on offense, innovative on defense, everything great. And he never coaches a game again. That is crazy to think that he just retired at 30 years old. When you you mentioned the book, he was given offers from other colleges, pro teams, Mm -hmm. everything. and And he just decides not to coach. Yeah. I mean, he could have been the head coach at Colorado, the head coach at, um, Maryland and Vince Lombardi, who he would spend summers with, wanted him to join his staff. And ironically, he would have been coaching Paul Horning again. But I think he'd been in that job, in that position enough to know that you, once you get to that level, you'll always get a job, but you're going to be moving around a lot, which is a, a terrible, terrible uh, plight for your family to have to suffer through moving from time to time, sometimes unexpectedly. And he has a lot of grief. And, you know, he's one of the few coaches, if any, that left his job and went to work for Goldman Sachs. <laughs> so it, it worked out. <laughs> he should have went and like bought a team that and coached himself after he had to do, do it like yeah. a, like an Al Davis. But uh, yeah, I just, it, but there wasn't even like, you know, it's one thing when if you're like 60 or 70, he's 30 years old. Like even five years later, someone didn't like, I'm sure people who are looking for coaches were saying, Hey, why don't we bring, he, he must've got offers for a decade, at least people asking him to come back and coach. Yeah, and people, uh, and occasionally even in his, you know, 50s and 60s, people were thinking about him as an athletic director. Um, but he just, you know, he, he'd been doing what he'd been doing for so long after coaching. He really had no, and he, believe me, he knew he knew the pressures involved as well. Uh, you know, and, and, and coaching changed. It's kind of interesting, you know, being a coach in, 19, in the 50s, you really had to like what you were doing. The big money wasn't there yet. And, and one of the reasons that it says, you know, the year that college football changed was, the 1958 NFL championship game between the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants went into sudden death overtime. And people started to realize that the pro game was pretty attractive and pretty exciting to watch. Then you throw in the AFL in 1960. And by the time you get into the mid-60s, uh, people are, are not no longer going to school on a football scholarship to get a job. They're getting going to school on a football scholarship to join the NFL and make a lot of money. And uh, so things changed. The coaches started making more money. The NFL players started making more money. It was the decline, the beginning of the decline of the service academies, unfortunately, and Vietnam didn't help either. But it it changed. It was was a different ballgame after that. And uh, he still doesn't regret it. He's very happy having done what he did. 
Yeah, and I, I mentioned in the book that he's gone back to games. I mean, he doesn't hold this grudge like a Bobby Knight towards Indiana. I mean, he definitely goes yeah, back yeah. to Notre Dame and, and involved in things with, with Notre Dame, even though he was fired when he was 30 years old with a record that he had. Yeah, it's interesting. He's never been a backward guy. He's a forward guy. And he, in, to get him to write this book, I mean, my late mother used to pester him to write about it because people don't really know the full story, and hopefully now they do. And he, he, when she passed away, there was a great deal of memorabilia that my wife uh, managed to computerize. And we found things like a handwritten autobiography, postmortem of the 1956 season. So we started pestering him again to write the book, and we finally got him to do it. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. He had a hard time doing that for the reason that he is a backward guy, he's a forward guy. We had to pull a lot of stuff out of him. <laughs> he, he, uh, he doesn't like talking about himself. He likes talking about other people. And we had to force him to talk about himself. So uh, fortunately, we did that. Well, Terry, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports and talking about your dad and, and his book, uh, Though the Odds Be Great or Small, it's going to be available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and everything and in the bookstore. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and talking about it and tell your dad I hope he's feeling well and I uh, hope he can uh, hear all the accolades he's going to get from this book. Great. Well, I, I appreciate it and I thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Great stuff there from Terry Brennan Jr. Ira, what are you doing this week? Well, we got... So the U.S. I'm going to go to the U.S. Open Friday, clearly on Friday and Sunday. So the men's semifinals on Friday and on Sunday, and I'll see Penn State. My, I haven't seen a Penn State game. Now it seems like oh, forever. Yeah. So I'll see Penn State gets Ball State on Saturday. So that'll be it. So I'll be like in New York. So Friday for, for, for tennis, Saturday for football, and back. But I know people are saying, well, why – you know, not, not the NFL, but I could, you could definitely think about those, but I think Djokovic's going to be playing in the finals and I want to see the history. That's the why I would go uh, to see the history of Djokovic in the final and give up uh, the Steelers-Bills game. Nobody remembers a week one NFL game unless your boy Najee Harris is 300 yards well, and I six touchdowns. The, I mean, <laughs> well, I'm going to draft to my fantasy. <laughs> We're out of time. Thank you so much to Terry Brennan Jr. He's Ira on Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Iron Sports.